Numbers chapter 12. <laughs> uh, it's so crazy, but that's a good, good response. <laughs> Numbers chapter 12. Tonight we'll be looking at this chapter. It's a short chapter, and it speaks of the discipline of the Lord. The discipline of the Lord. Before we get started, let me just... Um, let me just say, you know, um, I don't know about you, but I, I was a little discouraged after last night's election um, for a number of reasons. And I mean, I was a little I was more than just a little discouraged, just to be honest with you. I felt like um, so many of the, the things that were important to me as a Christian voter and uh my biblical worldview was just not really um, embraced by the rest of the country. I mean, I felt a little bit like, you know, the minority uh, for sure. Uh, and again, not to get into all the details of it, but um, just to encourage you tonight, and some of you may have been feeling the same way. You know, it was unfortunate to see some of the uh, the party that really kind of stands for things that we believe are really uh, dangerous biblically, seemingly uh, to advance their agenda. Even in some of the states, I noticed a couple of um, propositions that had passed, uh, gay marriage being uh, publicly, you know, by the majority voted in to a couple states in the nation. Um, those candidates that were very outspoken against abortion were clearly defeated in their various elections. I noticed uh, the recreational use of marijuana was was passed in Colorado, and I, I can't I can't believe that it didn't happen first in California, but I guess Colorado and another state beat us to it. But yeah, just kind of a sense of discouragement, like Lord, you know, where where is this nation going, and what is happening? And uh, feeling like, Lord, we prayed, we, we voted, we, we, we engaged, you know, we did what we could, but it didn't seem to really bear much fruit. It just seems that the heart of the nation is turning away from God. In fact, some of the just the, uh, you know, political news stations, just the CNNs, the Fox News, I was flipping around watching and, and even some of the commentators just were commenting on that. You know, this is the, the, their own their surprise at the just kind of the wave of the election and commenting that, you know, this has really become a very secular nation. And some of those uh, traditional values are just not widely held and represented in the country any longer. And I couldn't help but be discouraged by that, just to be honest. And uh, went to bed that way, kind of discouraged, and got up this morning and prayed and prayed it through. And I happened to be working my way through the book of Ezra in my personal time and so you're there in Numbers. Let me just remind you of Ezra. I just, just started the book of Ezra this morning in my reading in the mornings. And, and it says this in the first chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
who is among you of all his people. May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So those of you that are familiar with this passage and this place in Israel's history, Israel had been judged by God because of their departure from the things of God and taken captive to Babylon. And Babylon as a nation had fallen and now Persia was actually the reigning kingdom of the day. They had been there captive for 70 years, but God had prophesied through Jeremiah 70 plus years prior, before the actual captivity took place, that there would come a king in in the future, called him out by name, and that he, God, would stir up his spirit, this secular king, ungodly king, that God would use him and direct his heart to, to, to proclaim and send back Israel, God's people, back to the land. And so Ezra starts in the first year that the word of the Lord of the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And I found great encouragement in this passage this morning for a couple of reasons. One, God has everything under control. You know, the kings, the kingdoms, amen. Kingdoms may come and go. Kings may come and go. Presidents may come and go. Political parties may rise and fall. But God is in control of it all. And here's this Cyrus, king of Persia. Before he was born, Jeremiah was already speaking about what he would do and when he would do it. And here Cyrus now rises up and fulfills. He doesn't know God, not, not, not like the nation of Israel did. But, in, but God put it in his heart to know enough of God that he would direct his people back to Jerusalem. God turns the hearts of kings as he desires. God raises one up and sets one down. God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And for those of us that believe, for those of us that are called according to his purpose, he is working all things together for good. And that's a great hope for us today. And so I don't want you to be discouraged as I was last night. Maybe you were, maybe you, and there's much to pray about. And there is much to be, you know, concerned about in terms of the kind of the moral direction of our country. But you know what? We are here for such a time as this. God has placed us as his people, his remnant, his salt, his, his light in this dark time. And uh, it's an exciting time to be on the planet. It's an exciting time to be in this country at this time, at this season, because this is exactly where God wanted us. So let's let's uh, not be discouraged. Let's let's be, you know, let it let it motivate our hearts. Lord, uh, all the more I need to be in prayer. I need to be praying for our president, I need to be praying for our government, I need to be praying for God's hand to continue to direct the nations of the earth to the desired end that he has already spoken of through the prophets and through the apostles. And we have record of that and we see it playing out before us. So God has given us these things that we would not be surprised, that we would not be overwhelmed, that we would not be in despair. Oh, no. Now what? Now what's going to happen? We know what's ultimately going to happen. 
Jesus Christ is going to return and he's going to establish his kingdom upon the earth. And we know that he is moving chess pieces on the board as the master builder and chess player that he is, putting everything in position for what he is destined to do. So we trust him. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray. That doesn't mean everything will just take care of itself. God has called us to be active. God has called us to participate, to co-labor with him in this work of the kingdom, the work of grace, make ourselves completely available to whatever he wants to do. And uh, I say, Lord, come, Lord Jesus, come. And, Lord, live in us even brighter. Live in this church even stronger. Lord, I don't know how much longer we have. I wonder if this isn't a sign that maybe, you know, the end is even closer than we had thought. I don't know how to discern all of it. I'm not saying that I do, but I know that God is, is stirring in my heart that, you know what, we've got to live for him. Uh, that's all that matters. When it all settles, it's how we live for Jesus And we have an opportunity to live for Jesus. And the gospel is still powerful. I don't care how dark it gets. I don't care how decadent people get in their mind and their thinking. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. The message still has the power. It still has everything that it needs to save and redeem lives in any culture. In any generation, in any time, the gospel has proven itself to be a very powerful agent to save. Because God's power is behind it and in it. And so be encouraged tonight, just as uh, God was in control of the kings of old, God is in control of the governments of today. So uh, we pray and we, we live for him with all of our heart. And I believe that uh, we will be blessed and and God will guide us and direct us into those things that he has for us. Amen? Amen. Okay, back to Numbers chapter 12. Let's talk about discipline. Discipline of the Lord. I'd like to break this into three areas for us tonight. Verses 1 through 3, we'll see the dissension. Verses 4 through 8, the rebuke. Verses 9 through 16, the discipline. Let's look at these first three verses. Follow with me. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. And so they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Boy, I'll tell you, he hears everything, guys. Verse three. Now the man of Moses. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Aaron and Miriam are Moses's brother and sister. They are also Aaron. Of course, is the high priest. God has exalted them, using them in the ministry. They are serving there in the nation of Israel. But in comes this dissension. Based on the fact that Miriam is listed first here, and as we'll see in the discipline, Miriam seems to be the one who receives the more severe discipline, we might be able to sense that she might have been the instigator in this. Now, Aaron followed right along. Aaron's known to do that, by the way. He seems to follow right along with with other rebellions in the past, but here... It may have been that Miriam stirred it up. 
She's listed first, and as I mentioned, she kind of comes under a stronger discipline. But Aaron certainly joins the complaint, and this dissension begins. And so they completely mishandled whatever was going on in their heart. You know, the Bible instructs us uh, that if we have something with a brother, we're to go to the brother, go to the sister, not to find someone else and start talking about it. And here, this is the way grumbling, this is the where, the, where murmuring starts. Two people that have kind of a, a, a common um, frustration start to talk and grumble against the spiritual leadership, in this case, Moses. Rather than talking directly to Moses, rather than going and bringing their heart to him, they begin to speak to one another. And a couple things that I notice here. One, there seems to be something of a prideful, critical spirit. A prideful, critical spirit. Something about the Ethiopian wife. Now, some versions read the Cushite wife. It, it, it literally is translated Cushite. It's also translated Ethiopian. It's speaking of a region south of Egypt there in northern Africa. So his wife was not an Israelite woman. She was different in some way. She, her, the skin of her, uh, color of her skin may have been dark. Uh, She may have dressed differently. She may have had some different customs. She was not an Israelite woman. But Moses was in no way outside of God's will or purpose to have her as a wife. There was nothing wrong with Moses marrying this woman. The Bible, uh, God had given instruction that when they arrive into the land of Canaan, the promised land, that they were not to intermarry with the pagan men and women of the land. God had given, had forbidden that. But Moses was not in any violation in marrying this Ethiopian woman who no doubt feared God, loved God, but was different. She was not from the tribe of Israel. And he had not broken any of God's command, but he had offended both Aaron and Miriam, their idea of how things should be done. They felt that Moses' marriage was inappropriate for him as as the leader of the people. So they imposed their own rule, their own idea of what was right and wrong, their own assessment of what was proper for Moses. Nothing biblical, nothing of God's instruction, nothing that God had revealed. But they decided that this would be right and this would be wrong. So they kind of brought in something of their own legalistic idea and imagined that their own relationship with God was better than Moses because they didn't have any of these non-kosher relationships. They It was something of a pride. They evaluated Moses and they thought, you know, he's got an Ethiopian wife. We don't. We're, we're, we're spiritually more really, uh, you know, qualified to do this ministry than he is. I mean, look, he's, doesn't even, he's not even married to a, an Israelite woman. And they, they built something of this in their own mind. They imagined that they were actually better than Moses in terms of this opportunity for ministry. I'll read you one commentator on the subject of legalism. The classic fruit of legalism is a judgmental attitude that feels proud of our law-keeping and looks down on others who don't do things in the same way that we do. And that's what's going on. They're imposing their own ideas of how Moses should be doing it. He does something they didn't agree with. They thought they had the spiritual high ground, and so they began to criticize. 
This happens. It happens even in the church today. People evaluate what's going on in a ministry or in, within a leader, and they don't think that the leader's doing it right, and they imagine that they have the spiritual high ground after all. You know, I don't do that, and he does or she does, and, and, and they begin to criticize what's going on. And this is what's going on here uh, with Aaron and Miriam. And I've seen this in my own life. You probably have too. My own life of ministry, I, I've seen this over the years. Uh, I remember, uh, I remember a, a woman that was on the worship team many years ago, um, and she was a gifted woman in ministry. Uh, and was I was leading the worship team, and she was a part of the worship ministry. And on more than one occasion, she tried to bait me into grumbling against the pastor. And this can be done very subtly sometimes, very cleverly. And this is the way I always remember the phrase, because she would, she would always introduce when, when she was sit, getting ready to say something that I knew was, was going to be undermining the pastor. I kind of learned her phraseology. So whenever I heard her say this, I thought, okay, here it comes, you know. And this is the way she would say it. You know, Richard, I have to question the wisdom of a pastor who would do this. I have to question the wisdom of a pastor who wouldn't do this. You know, I'm not saying anything. I'm not complaining. But I have to question the wisdom. You know, just kind of this little subtle, like, you know, in, in a, uh, I know better than he does what should be going on here. And I have to question the wisdom. Sounds very inviting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is, why does he do it that way? Why are we... And this was kind of the way that she would try to, you know, over the, over the months, uh, basically, I, I would not give place to that. And uh, interestingly enough, some time went by, and I had allowed her to lead some of the worship services at our church. And she really liked that. And I was doing most of the leading, but then I l- allowed her to lead some. But then uh, it, it was in my heart to see a, a worship choir raised up, similar to the one that we have here at our church with uh, my wife leading. And so I, and this, this woman had a, had a gift in that area. I actually had sung in a worship choir in her ministry somewhere else. And so I said, you know, I really feel like I'd, I'd love to see you raise up a worship choir. Well, I don't want to do that. I want to lead worship. I said, well, that's actually what I do. So you, <laughs> you know. You're going to need to do you're going to need to do this. I don't want you leading worship anymore. I want you to actually you can still be on the worship team, but I'll be doing the leading now uh, at all the Sunday morning services. And that, that but I would love for you to do this ministry. She was so offended. She was so upset. She left the church. That was it. Never saw her again at the church. Left in a huff, felt like I had demoted her. You know, and this, you know, here, here it comes, right? All this, this, uh, what was really going on in her heart, all that questioning the wisdom uh, really revealed what was going on in her heart. She wanted leadership. She wanted the position. She wanted to be in a place where she could be, feel acknowledged. And, uh, you know, this goes on. And this is what's going on with Aaron and Miriam. They're getting this. And they're using kind of the Ethiopian wife as an excuse to justify. But what they really desire is they want to be equal with Moses in the ministry. They want to have that position of leadership that he has. I remind you of Romans chapter 14, verse 4. 
Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. A lot of the criticalness, a lot of this pride, it's really, it, it's really masking something else that's going on. And the scripture points out that, you know, don't judge another's servant. If, if, if someone is serving the Lord, who are you to judge? That man, that woman, that, they're not your servant. Moses was not the servant of Aaron and Miriam. Moses was the Lord's servant. Who are you to judge another's servant? You trust the Lord to lead and to guide. Now, this doesn't say that leadership is not accountable and there are no, you know, checks and balances. We're talking about people that are endeavoring to serve the Lord, serving in ministry. Moses, as it says here, was the most humble man on the earth. And yet here's Aaron and Miriam thinking that he's out of line uh, because of this Ethiopian wife. They're finding something critical and they want to uh, murmur against him. But what we really see is this jealous envy. That's the second thing. So there's this prideful, critical spirit, but really jealous envy is what is really driving it. This is the real issue. They criticized the marriage so that they could justify what they really wanted, which was the leadership. Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? We're just as spiritual as he is. You know what, Aaron, maybe we're even more spiritual. Why does he get to be the big leader? Why should he have? Why shouldn't we have just as much authority as he does? We've seen God use us. We're just as anointed as he is. Plus, he's got this, you know, Ethiopian wife. I mean, that's there's got to be something wrong about that. And so here here it comes. But it's really an envy. They compared themselves to, to Moses. And they thought themselves more spiritual. And then they compared their position with Moses. And they decided that they wanted a greater leadership role. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they measure themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Something wrong in the heart when, when, when we start to compare and we imagine that, you know, I'm more spiritual than he is. Why does he get to do that? Well, I'm, I, I'd be better at that ministry than she is. How come they picked her to do that? Don't, I'll, if they knew, if they, you know, knew what I know, they may not even want her. She's not even as spiritual as I am. She doesn't even come on Wednesday nights. I'm here on Wednesday. She, I only see her on Sundays. These are the things that people, you know, trouble over. They get critical and they imagine that, you know, they they start comparing. I could do that ministry better than him. I could do. Why do they have him doing that? I'm. I, that's right up my alley. I should be doing that. And so this is what's going on in Aaron and Miriam's heart. Why is he the only one that the Lord can use? The Lord uses us too. We're gifted. We should, we should have the same kind of leadership role as he, did, he does. And the scripture, as we just read, that when you start measuring yourselves by yourselves and comparing yourselves among yourselves, the Bible says that is not wise. That is not wise. Look, either Jesus Christ is the head of his church 
or he isn't. Either Jesus Christ is the one that is calling and gifting leadership and spiritual discernment in and through the life of the church, or he isn't. And when he isn't, then maybe we'll ask others to help. But until then, we really need to be looking to see what God wants to do. Not what I think should be done, what you think should be done. But what does the Lord want to do? And how, how has he organized and structured the leadership in the church? And so Aaron and Miriam, they find themselves in this uh, murmuring place. Uh, it's a lack of contentment, really. A couple of verses for you there. First Timothy 6, 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. The question isn't what can you do better than someone else. The question really is what has God called you to do? And that's what you need to be doing. And you need to find contentment there. Hebrews 13:5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. That is envy, jealousy, wanting, you know, what someone else has. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There is great joy and peace and contentment in serving God wherever he has you and learning to trust him. God knows how to exalt one and to set one down. God knows how to honor the heart that is submitted to the Lord. (laughs) Yeah, no. So let the Lord contentment, uh, learning to trust where God has you and learning to be faithful with what he has you doing and not not coveting, not envying, not comparing, not becoming critical and looking what they could be doing. And, oh, I, you know, I here's what we get a lot, you know, um, well, you know, I came from this other church and this is the way we did it over there. And this was so much better than the way you're doing it here. And of course, I'm always tempted to say, then why are you here? <laughs> but I never say that. So, uh, you know, if it's so great over there, why do you do? What are you wasting your time over here for? You know, uh, you, you just, you know, this is the way. Oh, that's not the way we do it where I come from. Well. You know, that's just the way we do it here. This is the way we feel the Lord's led us to do it here. We're making mistakes. We're learning. We're going to, you know, Moses was not perfect. We just saw in the chapter earlier, Moses himself had fallen into complaining. He was complaining about the complainers. Remember, God, if this is the way you're going to treat me, Lord, just let me die right now. I mean, Moses was no, you know, perfection leader. He was just a man because all of us are just men. All of us are faulty. All of us are frail. There are no pastors that are perfect. There are no ministry leaders. There are no husbands. There are no wives. None of us are perfect. All of us fall short. We miss the mark. But by the grace of God, he's able to use our lives. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, jars of clay, that the glory might be of him and not of us. You know, if we were really something, we might be tempted to think we're really something. The fact that God is able to use broken and imperfect vessels for his glory and his kingdom work is a testimony to his grace and his power and his love. And so we've got to learn to trust the Lord. And and Moses, it says, was humble. Now, Moses wrote these these books, these first five books. Kind of interesting that Moses would write of himself. Moses was the most humble man on the earth. (laughs) 
seems a little self-serving, Moses, but you got to remember that Moses was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Moses wrote what the Spirit of God told him to write. And the truth is, Moses was a humble leader. Moses did not aspire to this role. He did not work his way up the ladder to this role. Moses was called by God. And that's the end of the story. A lot of people have opinions. We all have opinions. But there's only one opinion that ultimately matters, and it's God. What has God said? What has God done? Has God called this man to do what he's to do? And if so, then that settles the issue. When God works, it is a humbling experience. Moses must have known by now that this was really the work of God. That's why he could say that his heart was humble, because he knew that that everything he had seen, everything that had happened for him to be in this role and in this position and seeing what God was doing with this nation could only be of God. He knew that it was a work of God and not a work of his own. And this this is where true humility is. It, It recognizes that God is the one that does the work. God is the one that uses our lives. God is the one that that raises up spiritual leadership and imparts grace to do uh, that which he's called us to do. Something else noteworthy here, we notice that Moses does not try to defend himself. Moses finds out about it. He does. We don't see Moses going on a campaign to defend himself. He's not. You don't see him out running. You know what Aaron and Miriam said about me? Hey, come here. You know what Aaron and Miriam? Can you believe what they said about me? <gasps> what? They said that about you? Yeah. Can you believe that? I never did one thing against them. And they, and we don't see Moses reacting this way at all. No. Moses is completely entrusting his defense to the Lord. And uh, as we'll see, the Lord is able to defend. Let's move on. Verses 4 through 8. Here comes the rebuke. Suddenly, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. And then he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? You talk about being called into the principal's office. (laughs) Suddenly the Lord said, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out here. I want to talk to you. (laughs) Aaron and Miriam, step forward, please. (laughs) (laughs) The pillar of the the voice coming, the voice of God coming from the the cloud. You can imagine that sense of, uh uh-oh, what have we done? And God speaks very clearly. This is a very clear rebuke. He reminds them of their place. He reminds them of Moses' calling. The Lord had, in fact, used them. The Lord did have a great purpose for them in the life of the nation. They did have a place of of ministry, a, a place of great privilege and service unto the Lord. 
and to be faithful where you are receives the same reward as anyone else's faithfulness where they are. You see, you don't have to have that person's role to receive the reward that God has for you. In fact, there is no reward for you trying to aspire for someone else's call and role. If you will be a faithful steward of what God has called you to do, God will bless you in the same way that he will bless that other brother that you think is more useful and has a better spot than you. We're likened to a body in the New Testament. And Paul says, you know, even some of the he uses the analogy of the body to draw out this point. You know, some parts of the body, they're not as visible. They're not as seemly. They're not as beautiful. They're not as kind of attractive as other parts of the body. But God has attributed to them even greater value. To create the, the equality, the balance, to let us know that no matter where you are in the body, no matter what your function and part is, you are of great value to the Lord. And, and one part of the body cannot say to the other part, I have no need of you. Or I'm not, I'm not useful to the body because I'm not this, this individual. This is all what God, I believe, is communicating in this calling Moses, uh, Aaron and Miriam out. He says, you know, when I speak to a prophet, I speak this way. Now, I believe that Aaron and Miriam had received. They said, has not the Lord spoken through us? They had had their own sense of revelation, the spirit of God using them in ministry. But God goes on to say, but with Moses, I've given him even a greater revelation. I've given him even a more clearer picture of what I'm saying because of the office and the role that I've called him to fill. He needs these, this kind of information because he's been called to lead this ministry. And so he, they, he puts them in their place, but he also reminds them of Moses' calling. They had a different calling. I think that question must have really uh, rattled their heart there. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? You see, they should have respected the office and the anointing on Moses' life as a servant of the Lord. Do you remember David when he had opportunity to take out Saul, his arch enemy? King Saul was looking for David, wanting to hunt him down, kill him. Saul had kind of lost his mind, so jealous of David, wanting to destroy David. But, but, and then David had an opportunity to take advantage and sneak up on Saul and take him out. And David wouldn't touch him. Why? I will not lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. If God is going to, if, if Saul is going to be dealt with, it will be by God's hand and not mine. He had such a respect for what God had called Saul to be, the king of Israel. Now, he knew that God had now called him and that he would ultimately be and rise to the kingdom. But he let God take care of that, not himself. He didn't. He, he had such a respect for God's anointing on the role that he had called Saul to at that time. And he knew that in, in God's time, he would, he would make the change and do what he wanted to do. And David was faithful under Saul's ministry during that time. Not so with Aaron and Miriam. They had forgotten that God is the one that had given Moses this ministry. And so the Lord rebukes them. And the Lord says, I don't, I don't know how you couldn't be afraid 
to speak because when you spoke against Moses, you were really speaking against me because I'm the one that gave Moses this place. Rebuke. You know, a good rebuke is a good thing once in a while. We don't like to be rebuked. We don't like to be corrected. We don't like that kind of strong word. But sometimes it does us good. How does the Lord rebuke us? Are there ever times when we need a good rebuke? (laughs) I'd say yes. I know from my own life I consider myself a target-rich environment when it comes to rebuke. I'm always needing some kind of correction. The Lord has to correct me from time to time. If the Lord needs to correct you, what will he do? Well, I believe that God will correct you through the word, reading the Bible. Have you ever read the Bible? And this has happened to me. I assume it's happened to you. You're reading the Bible and it's like, ouch. Oh, oh, Lord, that's me. That's my problem. And the word is just rebuking you. It's, it's, it's doing it in a, you know, the way the Lord does, in a very gracious and healing way, but it's, it's sharp. It's right to the point. Remember Hebrews 4 and verse 12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. I'll tell you, if you let God's word have its way and open your heart up, it will probe every place in your heart. And I want that in my life. I want God's word to search me out. I don't want to kid myself. I don't want to pretend. I I know that I've got issues. (laughs) Lord, let your word mine them out and bring them to the light so that I can repent, so I can get my heart right. I don't want to keep doing something that isn't appropriate. Let your word have its way in me, and it, is, and it does. You can harden, you can resist, you not let the word in, you can pretend that if you just don't hear it, or you don't let it find its mark, that somehow you're okay. But you're not. Let God's word work. Let him rebuke you. Think about it. The word of God is perfect in every way. Every way. How about you? Are you perfect in every way? No. So what would you expect when you align, when you begin to kind of look in the, to the word as a mirror? What do you think you're going to see? You're going to see some of the imperfections. I mean, you should always sense something of God's word kind of probing. And there may be times when he, just an encouragement and a strengthening. And we need that too. And the word has that. But there are times when the word just needs to be able to have access to rebuke our hearts in those areas that we need it. Sometimes it comes through the hearing of the word. And maybe a sermon on the radio, maybe a sermon here, Lord, Lord willing, God's word would, would touch your heart. His word will do it. I believe the Holy Spirit will speak through his word. I believe the Holy Spirit at times will just speak in your heart. If you've ever had the Holy Spirit just, just correct you. Psalmist prayed for this kind of relationship. Psalm 139.23, search me, O God. And know my heart, try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The Lord will rebuke us just by the Holy Spirit prompting you. And you've probably, if you've walked with the Lord, you've experienced that. I know I have. I've said something and immediately the Holy Spirit, that was not the right thing to say. That was selfish. That was mean. And the Holy Spirit has to rebuke me. I want that in my heart. I want God to be able to shape me. Search me, Lord. Try me. Lord, uh, 
rebuke me when I need it. Because I trust you. I know you love me. I know you're doing it for my good. Sometimes through spiritual leadership. Paul would tell Timothy, here's a few verses that Paul gave instruction to spiritual leaders. 1 Timothy 5.20, those who are sinning do what? Rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince and what? Rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Titus 2.15, speak these things, exhort and Rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. God will use sometimes spiritual leaders to come and correct your life. And you have to be available for that. You have to allow your heart to be corrected in that way. And so Aaron and Miriam, they are receiving a rebuke. But it doesn't end there. God not only rebukes them, he also disciplines them. Let's finish up the chapter. Verse verse 9. So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. Then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was, a leper. So Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us, in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as one dead, whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, Please heal her, O God, I pray. And then the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp seven days, and afterward she may be received again. So Miriam was shut out of the camp seven days, and the people did not journey till Miriam was brought in again. And afterward the people moved from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. So the Lord disciplines Miriam specifically. There is this leprosy that comes upon her. Aaron says to Moses, don't let her be like, describes her almost as someone deformed out of the womb. It must have been something of a hideous sight to even look upon, this discipline upon her her dissension and rebellion. But Moses intercedes. The very one that she offended is now the one who prays for her healing. That reminds me of Jesus. The Bible says, Romans 5 and verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The very ones that have offended God, the very ones that have rebelled against God, are the ones that God comes to save in Jesus Christ. Moses is the one that they, they rebelled against. Moses is the one they, they, they attacked. And now Moses is the one who offers the intercession on their behalf. And she is healed. There is something of a public disgrace here on Miriam as well. The camp could not continue until she had finished her separation. But God does heal her. God is merciful. And God clearly teaches them something here. It is something of discipline. We want to close tonight in Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to ask you to turn there with me. This idea of the Lord's discipline. I do not believe that every sickness is a discipline of the Lord. I do not believe that every disease is some... God trying to 
teach us or do something in a disciplinary way. However, it can be. Paul would tell the Corinthians that some of you are sick and even dying because of your sinful handling of communion and the, the Lord's, you know, the meaning of the Lord's Supper. So it can be that, that sinful behavior can produce that kind of consequence, but clearly not always. We read in Philippians just this Sunday, Epaphroditus, this wonderful servant of the Lord, and yet in his serving and ministry he was sick even unto death, but God was merciful and healed him. So don't, don't misunderstand that somehow sickness is always God's discipline. It isn't. Sickness is really just a part of living in a fallen world and weak bodies, and, and this is part of the human condition. But it can be. God can use all kinds of personal circumstance to get our attention. But understand that when the Lord disciplines, he's doing it not to judge and to destroy, but to rescue, to heal, to teach, to protect. He disciplines those whom he loves. This is the principle we find in Hebrews 12. Look with me, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which, which speaks to you as to sons. You see, the people that Paul, the writer of Hebrews is writing to, they were becoming weary and they were becoming discouraged. Things were hard. They were having trials. They were having difficulty. So the writer of Hebrews says, listen, don't give up. Some of this is just part of God's discipline and training in your life. And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you, are endure, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is a, a biblical principle that for the child, the true, legitimate child of God, God loves you and I enough to chasten, to discipline. At times a rebuke, just a word will correct, and sometimes a discipline is needed, a chastening. And if you've had any kind of journey with the Lord, I have, I have no doubt if you're a true child of God, you've been chastened. And the scripture here says, don't despise that. Don't resent God for that. Don't get upset with God for that. Allow God the process of disciplining and chastening your life. And it comes through circumstance. It can come through trial. It can come through difficulties. Sometimes it's because, you know, you got yourself into it. And then there's a circumstance, right? And that's kind of part of the discipline that's built into some behavior. And, you know, you sow to the flesh and you reap something from that experience. 
And God has actually built it into the to the fabric of our lives that, you know, certain behaviors produce certain disciplines. But there are other times when God is just trying to mature you and grow you. And he will bring circumstance in your life that all of a sudden kind of stops you in your tracks. You were going along pretty well. At least you thought you were. And then a circumstance comes. And what happens? You got to have to regroup. You have to get you have to seek God. You have to Lord, what Lord, what's going on? And the Lord will use these circumstances oftentimes to direct us, to shape us, to fashion us. And we have to allow that process. That's what's going on here with Aaron and Miriam. He rebukes them. He corrects them. This is unacceptable. You're attacking my servant. He's not yours. He's mine. And when you attack him, you're attacking, you know, my work. And not only a rebuke, but a discipline comes. Now, you can bet that Miriam did not make this severe a mistake again. She she would not be perfect after this, but certainly this would be God's hand to protect her, to protect Aaron, to protect Moses, to protect the nation. Can you imagine if this went unchecked? They're not even to the promised land yet. They're just getting started on the journey. Can you imagine if God lets this dissension right there amongst the family, a family squabble, two, two brothers and a sister can't, fighting over who's in charge? God disciplines this severely, as he often does at the beginning of a work. God's discipline is to protect that early stage of a work. But he does it for the good, the good of of all concerned. And that's what God will do in our lives as well. We don't need to be afraid of God's discipline because God knows how to balance it. God's hand is that's what that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Listen, you had earthly fathers. They did the best they could. How much more will your heavenly father do what is right? Submit to it and live. Allow that process to take place. Now, no discipline for the moment is joyful. Can you say amen? (laughs) But painful. But for those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields something good. I want the Lord to work good things in my life, in my character. I acknowledge that I'm not, I've not yet arrived to that man that God wants to ultimately shape me into more and more like Jesus. And so I have to allow the disciplines, the rebukes to shape me and help guide me and direct me. And Lord, if I get off course, you know, I think of Jonah, Lord, put a whale out there for me. You know, don't let me just sail off into Neverland, you know. Arrest me, stop me, discipline me, get me back on the course that you've ultimately called me to. Fashion, you know, some kind of a trial for me. Lord, be merciful. You know, do it in a way that that really does yield a good fruit in my life, but do it in a way that I learn, that I change, and that I'm being transformed into the image of your Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these examples that you've given to us in the book of Numbers. It speaks to us, God, of really where we live. Lord, we, we all have a tendency to be critical. Lord, we're all guilty of sometimes comparing ourselves one with another. Envy, jealousy sometimes. Lord, these things are, are possible in all of our hearts. 
And we recognize, Lord, how dangerous these things are to the work of the kingdom, to the body of Christ, to the unity that you've called us to as a people. And so I pray that you would, Lord, for those of us that need it tonight, that you would rebuke us. Speak a word into our heart, Lord. Let us hear it. Let us learn. And Lord, for those that need discipline tonight, Lord, we, we trust you. We, we don't like it. We don't want it. But Lord, if we need it, if we need it, Lord, so that we can come into the fullness of what you have for us, we trust you. We will not despise it. We will allow you to have your way in our heart and in our lives. And I do pray, God, for, for maturity. We do need to grow up, Lord. We need to come into the fullness of what you have for us individually as a church. Lord, as we are learning more and more how desperate our culture and generation needs mature Christian witnesses. And so, Lord, have your way in us tonight. Forgive us, Lord, for the mistakes that we've made. Forgive us for some of these attitudes in our hearts that are not right, not pleasing. The Lord hears. And help us, God, to rise above these things and to be content to learn to trust that, Lord, what you have for me is the right thing for me. I don't want to find myself coveting someone else's ministry I want to be faithful with the ministry that you've called me to and Lord you've called each and every one of us to something good something useful something profitable something fruitful help us to find that to walk in it and help us to serve one another Lord as we each use our gift Lord all the gifts begin to enhance each other and the body is healthy and whole And as we close here tonight and heads are bowed, I do want to give an opportunity for those that may need to respond tonight. A couple of things I'd like to pray for. Number one, of course, anybody here that needs the Lord in their life, you need to receive Jesus Christ into your life or you need to rededicate your life to him. I'd love to pray for you. And you know if the Lord is speaking to you. We shared it tonight just in the same way that Moses interceded for his brother and sister. So Jesus has come and interceded for mankind. He has died on the cross for our sins. We offended God in rebellion and in sin. We've been going our own way, but this very God whom we offended has now sent his son to intercede for us. And maybe you're here tonight and you've just never received Jesus as your Savior, but He's speaking to you tonight and you need to give Him your life. I'd love to pray for you. If you need to come back to Him, rededicate. If that's you tonight, just raise your hand so that I can see you and I'll pray for you. Anybody here tonight, God bless you. You sure as well. They're in the back. God bless you as well. Any others? Three that have raised their hands. Anyone else? The Lord is speaking to you. You need to come to Jesus and receive forgiveness. You need to come back to Jesus and recommit your heart to Him. Lord, I thank You for these hearts that have responded. I pray that You would meet them in this moment. 
I believe that you love them. I believe that it's your word coming to their heart tonight. And that they would come to you and that they would confess and acknowledge. Just as Aaron did to Moses. When he came to Moses, he said, Look, Moses, forgive us. We've done foolishly. And so tonight we come and we say, Lord, we've done foolishly. Forgive us. We're just sinners. I'm asking you to cleanse these hearts that have responded. As they turn to you, Jesus, and your sacrifice for them at the cross. Cleanse them, renew them in relationship with you. Fill them with your spirit. Make them children of the true and living God tonight in this moment as we pray. And as our heads are bowed, I want to give just one more invitation and then we'll close in worship. If you're here tonight and this message is... I don't know, I guess in some way you find something of a rebuke in your heart tonight. I just want to pray for you. I want you just to acknowledge, I want you to say amen to God's word. Don't be afraid, don't, don't, don't harden, don't stiffen, don't say no, that's not me, no, no. I, I, I. Allow God to speak to you tonight. I'm, heads are bowed, I'm not looking for any confessions tonight. I'm just looking for those in your heart. You know that God is giving you a clear word of correction tonight. Maybe you've you've been complaining. Maybe you've been jealous. Maybe you've been acting in the flesh. And God has spoken to you very clearly tonight. He's heard. He's heard what's going on. He's displeased. And He's asking you, to receive this word of correction into your heart so that he can heal you and set you free. If that's describing your heart tonight, let me see your hand. I want to pray for you. Bless you. Quite a few of us tonight. Amen. 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 Anyone else? God bless you. God bless you. You know, that's a good thing to receive God's word honestly into the heart. I want to pray for you. Lord, your word really is alive. And it really is sharp, Lord, sometimes like a piercing arrow and sword. It finds those corners of our heart, even separates the bone from the marrow. It judges even our intentions, even those secret thoughts and and hurts and frustrations and bickerings and bitterness that we have. It finds its mark if we'll give place to it. And Lord, for those that have responded tonight, that's my prayer. We would just give place to that work in our heart. Lord, have your way. Tell me what I need to hear, not what I want to hear. God, speak the truth to me through your word. Let it find its mark in my heart. I want to be like the psalmist. Lord, search me, try me. And lead me in the way that is everlasting. So, Lord, for those that have responded, heal them tonight. Let that word not only bring conviction, but let it bring healing and forgiveness and cleansing. That's why you convict us, Lord, so that we will say amen, so that you can cleanse and restore and renew and heal. And so, Lord, do a work in the hearts of those that have responded to this this invitation tonight. And do a work of healing and 
and, a, and just a, a miraculous release, Lord. So, so freeing when we turn it over to you. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. And so, Lord, we just give it over to you. We acknowledge, we receive it, and we ask for you to heal us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you. Would you stand?